Here we go, spring of 2021. This is the 1080 Outdoors Podcast Land Management Series, where our main focus is pursuing the truth for everyday hunters like you. I wouldn't say it's kind of an FU, it's definitely an FU. Chronicle and document how our season's going and give you real-time updates, overall land management practices. You have to find a way to hunt big buck where they are. Welcome to the 1080 Outdoors Podcast, episode number 97. And this is a special one. Mark Shepard, the author of Restoration Agriculture, Water for Any Farm, and the new course, Restoration Agriculture, a land manager's guide found at restoringagriculture.com is here to join me on my farm. And Mark, as uh, we've had previous episodes together, um, and as I've probably mentioned in here before, Mark is one of the inspirations for the agricultural interest that I've had. And it actually just worked out as well that he's a, a pretty avid deer hunter too. And, uh, his property is loaded with big bucks. He, he, he lives in the same county as I do, so he operates a farm with a similar um, terrain and similar plant types and everything. So that's what drew me to him. Our previous conversation is a lot more in-depth about like land management. This conversation is a lot more about the act of acquiring the real estate in order to do this how to then get that real estate to pay for itself and truly have close to an infinite and scalable business model, investment model. But it takes a quick little adjustment of expectations. That's all I'll say. And I've, I've gone through the exact same thing on, the, on this farm. Um, initially, I set out and, it, and it's very tempting to just be like, well, I don't, why don't I just figure out how to make enough money to just live off of this place? Because then I don't have to deal with anything else. <laughs> like essentially I could just have employees and people. And the only thing you're counting on is animals and, and the animals are counting on you. And it's, it is a, it's something that I've definitely considered, but <clears throat> being in it, you really run yourself into that trap of, of, uh, agriculture is tough. And we discuss kind of, the issues in that, like how the system works against agricultural producers at, at large scale and and how if you just adjust your expectations to to fit not only the workload that you want to do, the work you want to do, but then also just just adjust it to break even on the real estate. It's it's a wild, awesome investment because it's better than apartments. It's better than commercial real estate. It's better than having a tenant in the f- way of I mean, you, you are interacting with the land. You're improving the habitat on the land. You're improving the wildlife value on the land. Everything that hunters want to do, you can do. All you have to do is implement animals, implement, or Im- necessarily don't even need to implement animals. Just get into an agricultural perspective, and then you can, you can make enough money to pay for the property. And that's what we're striving for. You know, it's oftentimes... You know, you, people, you know, Mark's in the same group as like Joel Salatin, 
um, Gay Brown, a lot of these like well-known farmers, and a lot of times they make it simple or make it seem easy. Like Joel Salatin talks about like renting land and then cash flowing, like and actually like really pounding on the business aspect and like how you can make a living doing it. I don't know. I'm adjusting the expectations and adjusting kind of the goal to for especially for you guys. This is like how about we use it to the point where it just pays for itself? And how long does that take? And is it scalable? Because most of the time when you scale something, and when I say scale, meaning like how do you add more property and how do you add more animals, all that, um, because it's all just generally you, you get an equation down. Like I have an acre of land, I can produce this, amount, this amount of return. An acre of land costs this much. How, does, how do you get that to break even? So if you buy an acre of land for $4,000 an acre, how long does it take you to cure $4,000? And if I buy that land at $4,000 an acre, but it's adjusted on a 20-year note, then the question shifts or the response shifts to how do I make the amount to pay the yearly cost for that one acre of land? And then what's the amount of money I can make? You know, So the equation can get relatively simple. So I, I, there is a scalable model. But as we talk about in here, you are, unfortunately, you are victim to a system that most likely is going to work against you. You're going to get rich doing it. Not on, not on the surface, but your asset class is going to grow exponentially. And depending on what you like to do in life, you're going to be on a piece of ground, on land, working with animals, working with wildlife. And it's a pretty enjoyable experience. You know, I look at it. I spend about as much time on the farm operation as, you know, if I were to be like in an active sport, working out and training for a sport, I kind of, I kind of draw a similarity to that. Like, like I know like right now the summertime, like I'm more into it. I'm more physically, it's more physically demanding. There's more time that's, that's needed, but I'm also, I look at it. It's also kind of like I'm in the middle of a sport practicing every day. And then the, you can get to the end goal of the end of the year. And I, I'm i setting this place up to where I can get rid of all the livestock, everything at the end of the year. And you can go into a winter and not deal with that. Leave for a winter, whatever it is. Focus back on a different business for a winter. So we discuss. Mark's been doing this for 30, 40 years. 50 years maybe? I don't know. He'll say it in here. But um, he's a wealth of knowledge. We do have a new course called RestoringAgriculture.com. Go to RestoringAgriculture.com. It's the course is called Restoration Agriculture: A Land Manager's Guide, and it's a it's a college level curriculum, forest ecology course, essentially how to transform a forest into a food producing ecosystem, and it is guaranteed to be beneficial to wildlife. Even if you're a hunter, you can take a lot of these a lot of these tactics. Um, and it's truly the tactic that you can get to the point where you can cash flow a property or break even on a property. And the value behind that is just, well, like I said, it's infinite. You put a dollar in, you get a dollar out, but then you end in 25 years with a giant asset. That is pretty cool. So it's an infinite ROI. It really is because if it's scalable, then you can do it multiple times and you can't really put, so it's, it's, it's a little bit better than the 8% average on the market return. Not to mention the 8% average on a market return, you got to put all that cash in to get that 8% out. You're, you're risking that money. It's out there. 
honestly, and as Mark says in this podcast, you're not risking anything with land technically if you're borrowing, if you're using bank money. And if that goes south, like he says in this podcast, you just walk away. It's unfortunate. He's, as he says, the creditors can't eat you. So, so it's a mindset mindset change. So if you're in that class of someone that's like, I can't afford land, I can't do it, don't know how, don't know even where to start. This is uh, a good podcast to kind of change, hopefully switch your mindset and get you into not that I can't afford something, but how can I afford that? So once again, this is an episode with Mark Shepard, author of Restoration Agriculture and Water for Any Farm and new released course, online course, restoringagriculture.com. Head there, do us a big favor, buy it. It does not cost very much, especially if it teaches you an infinite ROI. And I can argue that maybe it does. So thank you for listening. Head to restoringagriculture.com, check the course out, and enjoy this podcast. Not so fast. Before we get into the episode, the last episode with Mark was episode 44. I wanted to make sure I dropped that in here before we started this. And I want to drop a quick note. As you all listened in episode 96, I do have my real estate license now, and I'm focusing on land and farm, recreational pieces, farm pieces. Uh, if you acquired land through a death in the family and you, you don't have the time to take care of it, um, or if you're buying land and you want to buy a recreational piece, if you want to buy a farm, you want to buy a homestead, whatever it is, head to driftlessregionland.com. So driftlessregionland.com. Um, and then it, I will explain everything in on that website. If you want to buy, if you want to sell, it'll be, take you to two different spots. And I would love to help you in any type of real estate you want to try to find in the beautiful southwest, southwest Wisconsin area. If you're outside of Wisconsin, I'd consider thinking about coming to Wisconsin. So I am a certified agent. I would love to help you with that stuff. Any, honestly, southern Wisconsin, northern, whatever it is. I know agents around the state. I will help you, and I'll make sure the, the property is set up properly for you and is a right fit for you. All right. Now it's on to the episode. Mark is awesome. Um, all with no cash flow because I've been investing in crap land, upgrading it, improving its asset value to refinance and go buy another piece of property and sell some trees and sell some produce and sell some pigs and a, a a lot of little things adds up to enough. It because <clears throat> just, yeah, just putting a portion of the break-even cash flow daily living into the long, the I play. Just as long as you're, if you're, if you're, if you're like playing in the I category at all, you're going to, at some point, life will be easier. Yeah. And, and at least one, I assume that we'll, that would, like, we'll if you're out. consistently putting into that, and one of the things about the daily living stuff, when all of a sudden you're generating your own electricity, you don't have an electric bill, you're producing your own heating materials because you designed your home to be, you know, wind and solar, thermal heated, and then wood, firewood for, the, you know, the main bulk of the heat. Well, then when you're cutting the firewood, you're also having saw logs for timber sales, and you're also generating mushrooms out of that for additional sales on top of that. Oh, and by the way, mushrooms you can now eat, so now I have less of a food bill. For all practical purposes, I buy no food. I, Kenzie and I were just having that conversation the other day. Amazing how. I'm like, I don't think you, 
how affordable life can become. We're in the middle of podcast. Food. Ken's just bursted in first first appearance. Well, as long as she didn't come in swearing like last time. Oh man. <laughs> well, she is generally out of control. Oh my god. You check the water and the meat bird stuff. All right. Um, we were just talking about the other day. I'm like, technically, I don't. If it wasn't for mayo, ranch, ketchup, and mustard. Right. And, but other than that, I think I'd be fine. Once lettuce grows and shit, like I have that, because yeah. I could just eat salads and chicken and pork and beef all day. Mayo, I've made. It's basically eggs and vinegar for all purposes. Um, Where do you source the vinegar then? From the apples that I squish to make booze. Ooh. <laughs> it's part of the system. So it's a, it's a it's related It's part of the system. oak savanna system. Apples are part of it. Well, and then uh, as far as ketchup is concerned, I was, you know, bemoaning that because you've got to grow way too many tomatoes, boil it all down. It's a waste of energy, you know, yada, yada, yada. And this person said, oh, didn't you know that ketchup is a condiment that's been used in the U.K. since before Columbus ever discovered the New World, which means that there were no tomatoes when ketchup was first invented? It's like, well, then what the hell do they make ketchup out of? He said, mushrooms. It's like, come on, you can't be serious. No, here's the recipe. And so you run them through a food grinder, um, and you add the right amount of salt and right amount of spices to it, and it's a lacto-fermented condiment. And uh, when I made it, it came out black. It was looked really nasty. It's like, ooh, that is weird. And then you, you put it on, and doggone it, I tell you, it tasted like ketchup. It was ketchup. Is the original ketchup was made out of mushrooms. Now I don't know their research. I didn't verify it or anything like that. I just believed them for what they said. Followed the recipe, and it was ketchup. <sighs> mustard would have to do. You know, would have to collect our mustard seeds. That's crazy. And then add add it to vinegar. But vinegar, you know, um, you know, is an abundant product. You know, in a, in a system like this, you got all kinds of apples that you're squishing. Yeah, you, I do. Well, yeah. You ferment this with no oxygen to make booze. You ferment that with oxygen to make vinegar. And, you know, I just, I have 250 gallons of vinegar still sitting on the farm right now I haven't used. It stores. F- almost forever. What does happen, and I don't know why, I haven't done any research because I don't care um, as why, but, but it, it, got the, it got more and more diluted over time. And I'm just assuming that it's somehow taking in moisture from the atmosphere. I have no idea. Um, I don't know how it would lose its fav- flavor. Acetic acid is acetic acid. How would it lose that? I don't know. Maybe it, maybe it evaporates slowly over time. I just have in those plastic IBC totes. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. And so if it's off-gassing through the years, I just I'll just have to go squish some more. Because it still works as, a, uh, as an herbicide on the driveway. Because i got weeds coming up in the driveway. You just open up the... It's weak vinegar, doesn't taste the way I want it to taste. You just open it up and flood out the weeds, and they're dead. No way. Yeah. So it's, so it's an herbicide. It's a cleaning agent. It's, it's great for, you know, making pickles and, and uh, mayonnaise and mustard. So, yeah, vinegar is a great So I could – there's things that – now that I'm, like, in this, doing this stuff, like managing a farm, there's things that, like, I could see myself for, like, a year getting into. Like, right now – I don't have interest. I'm like, I, we can go to the grocery store. I'm just like, I'm making it. I'm like, we could technically not go to the grocery store right? at this moment. Like, that's cool. Yeah. But I could see, like, how about, like, for a year? Did you ever go, were you ever like, I'm just going to spend a year. I'm not going to town ever. I didn't do it exclusively to say I'm not going to yeah. town ever. You didn't, like, make, like, a game out of it? No. I could but, see games being made. But, it, but it's almost almost like that. I mean, yeah. because, quite frankly, I'd rather I'd rather just hang out in the trees and... 
like scratch pigs behind the ears and stuff like that. And throw sticks with the dog. Yeah, before we were live, I, yeah. I, I'm having some issues with the pigs. I think. I think I'm <laughs> somehow kind of emotionally attached to them. I just signed the one first one. Look at it. He's look at him right now. That's the one that's going in two weeks. I mean, he's just a floppy eared. He and he, I, the day I got him. Opened the trailer gate, forgot that I had ordered 150 or said yes to a 150 pounder. And I'm like, what the fuck? This guy just. He's huge. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm like, this dude just tried to drop a pig off on me? Because obviously I was getting ones that just had been weaned. Right. And then this one's in the trailer with him. I'm like, what the oh, hell? Oh, he didn't tell you that there was all. He had, I forgot. Oh, all right. But in the moment of opening the trailer, be like, hey, oh. welcome to new pigs to the property. There's a giant sitting in the back. I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> I'm not ready for him. Uh. And it wasn't because the fence wasn't working and they ran right through it. Right. That's always the tricky part is the first few days, a week or so, is getting them used to the fence. And so, you know, now the pigs at the farm, you know, my pigs, they've had two weeks. They've busted out three times. The worst part, uh, we had three of us. One person's in the trailer handing, you know, holding the pigs. I ring the pig, then hand it to the person in the, in the pen. Yep. They put it in a nice little nest of hay. There's water and feed. Um, well, as soon as that first pig touched down on the ground, was kind of like stunned, like, what just happened to me? Yeah. Um, the dog jumps over the fence. This, this little um, Jack Russell Terrier jumps over a four-foot, two-by-four chicken wire fence into the pen and chases the pig. And boom, pig's off and running. Well, meanwhile, i already done the second pig. I'm about to hand him in. What do I do with this pig that I'm holding? we got to go chase the first one. We ended up running down two different pigs. Um, now, here's, here's, a, here's a technique. Uh, human beings have the ability to sweat, and we have the ability to jog for long, long distances. Even if you're out of shape, you just kind of go plod, 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 plod. Yeah, that's how I so used if to you run. Gotta, whether it's a pig or a dog or an elephant or whatever this is, you get into a wide enough perimeter, and you jog slowly, and it sees you, and you're close enough that it's threatening, so then it runs. And if it goes in the wrong direction, you turn and you go the other way. Well, then if you got two of you, you just kind of do the slow dance around them, and they'll overheat in no time at all. And so to be chasing these little pigs down that go on a million miles an hour, good luck trying to catch a little pig. You see those little, like the pig wrestling competitions at the state fair and the county fair and yeah. stuff like that? You can't catch these things. They go a million miles an hour. But if you jog them, you can jog them to death. So in no time, we had these absolutely physically exhausted, overheated pigs. Just go pick them up and put them in the fence. <laughs> They've been good little kids ever since. <laughs> that's crazy i yeah we were lucky that night they just i don't know they just kind of like listened we'll put through some grain out and well they, they got hungry yeah, yeah they come home yeah yeah but it doesn't take long before they second i mean you could i could probably i honestly think i might try it too because i'm waiting for the black one to leave and then i'm gonna start moving them I'm, i just think they literally will follow you for a while yeah without offense like move i'm starting to think like how do i because i want to take them down to the woods I'm like, how the fuck am I going to get them down there? Yeah. You know, not like you could go paddock to paddock through the pasture, but I'm like, I think they just would follow you down there for a long ways. If you are their friend and you're the one that brings them food and goodies and scratches and you talk to them, they will follow you just around anywhere. I know. Yeah. You're the swine it's herd. crazy. The cattle are just as easy. They're, it's wild. Deer have been running through the fence a couple of times. And so I have, I've had to. Two mornings now, I've gone down there to fill the water up. I'm like, shit. It's the biggest problem is that the deer run through the fence, yeah. break the fence, 
and then somebody they're wanders home. out and they're like where are they then they gotta go find and them. they're psychopaths and they just run yeah um but this time it was both times just walked to a gate opened it and stood there for a while and just found their way in and what can work sometimes too is especially after you've had them for a period of time is just to get a piece of bailing twine between you and another person and you kind of spool it out longer and longer and longer and it looks like electric fence to them and you just is one person a and person b attached by yeah. whatever the string and you just kind of go around them and you move them with the string they don't know it's not electric yeah i did that kind of with the gate opening like went up and around them but they it is crazy it's you can just i have i i'm <laughs> i think people would normal people like especially because i drive by farms and i see how gate like fenced in their properties are right like if somebody came to this property and saw me moving these cattle around with literally just one string, right, right. first year I've ever done it, yeah. I have no exterior fence or anything. Oh, you don't even have an exterior. I don't fence. have not a fully built one yet. Yeah. I have one side covered over there where the goats are. The back side is not covered. I know the rest of the property is just covered by a tree line, and yeah. they they have never even even when they've been out, they always congregate up here to the middle because the other morning I walked out and like that's how I saw them. Like oh, you just out. In the middle of a field, huh? Also, there's another thing, too, and that's actually, especially, like, with the pigs, uh, <coughs> is if your habitat is the best habitat around, why would they run anywhere? They run somewhere else, and it's no good, so they turn around and they come back. So as long as your place is the best, and as long as you're rotating them often enough, there's always grass that's going to be perfect. It seems like the rotation controls them because they always, they're assuming that you're taking them to, like, better food. Right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Whereas, like the only times, the only time they've actually broken out is when I knew it was like the bale was either getting low and they weren't, like they just got, they got hungry. Yeah. They got hungry. <laughs> like, and, and then you think about somebody who's just set stalking. They put eighty acres. They put a fence around it. They throw the cattle out there. And they're the always only, out. The only time the cattle see you is when you come and harass them with a four wheeler, you know, and and you're trying to give them a shot. Or you're trying to load them up in a squeeze chute, so their their response is to run away. They don't. You're not their friend, and you're not there every day. Whereas if you're rotating them every day, you're talking to them. I recommend singing to them. And if you have <laughs> if you have a, a either a call or a song or just something really soothing, they recognize one your voice. But that's the song that means oh he's going to give us candy today. Yeah. And and I would always have like a little bit of calf starter feed, um, just as just as candy. Everybody gets a little bit of candy every single day. Some people do it with, like, the alfalfa blocks for horses. Just some kind of treat that when they hear your voice, they see you, they come running because they know they're going to get ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good idea. I still haven't touched one yet. Yeah, it may not happen yeah. until later in the season, but they you know they know who you are. Oh, yeah. It's, and, and it's, as time goes on, they'll know even more. Does, does it's this, wild. Does this uh, pig back here, does he, uh, does he respond to you favorably at all yet? Yeah, like I can go. I pigs, I can go up and like pet yeah, and I'll like nudge right. you. Yeah. I just choose not to because yeah. I'm like this shit's out of hand. Because <laughs> then you'll really feel sad about. I it. know. <laughs> I've been avoiding them. It's easy. Like, I got a, I got attached to them when they were in the garden because like we you'd be sitting here and you could just watch them. Yeah. And I could feel like I'm like I these I have to start moving them yeah. because these are. It's an issue. Like Kenzie, everyone's naming them. I'm like, don't name them. Well, and I'm exactly the opposite philosophy. I name every single pig, and I make it a point so that when I call the name of that pig, that pig responds. So this is an individual oh relationship. My God. This is an individual relationship between myself and this pig. The reason why I do that is because I really feel that it's important for human beings to remain humane. 
and you will not, someone who has a name and a personality that you know different from somebody else, you can't mistreat. You know, you can't mistreat. Some people say, well, yeah, you know, blowing the head off and, and eating them is mistreating them. It's like, well, okay, I'll grant you that point. Yeah, that's horrible. But these pigs were born on somebody else's farm. They're destined for the slaughterhouse, whether it's that way or this way. At least they come over here and have a good life. Yeah. They wander around the woods. They eat apples and cherries and raspberries. They get massage and pats. We play games. Do you have a, um, uh, you know, the kickballs that you used to have in gym class? Yeah. Get one of those and throw I, them in see, there. I, I think I'll work my way towards this. Like, I need to get through one. Like, I need to get through the actual slaughtering. And, like, obviously, I'm assuming you're gonna. it's going to get better after a couple of years of yeah. doing it. It Hopefully it doesn't, Taylor. Hopefully. <laughs> but then, I don't know. I've honestly considered I'm like, I don't think I'm, I've already been like, well, the females were keeping yeah. because we're going to whatever. And so, so what I do is for my own personal consumption, um, I butcher my own. I shoot it and I eat it. And I found that that with a bow at close range, like standing right next to them, is the most humane. They just pant a few times, they trot 25 feet away, and they lay down and they go to sleep. Um, shooting them with a gun, they end up like twitching and squealing and screaming and hollering, and all the rest of them get upset. So I take my own personal one with a bow. Well, this last year, because of the whole COVID thing, everybody's in lockdown, my three sons, it's like, well, uh, I'm going to supply food to these guys because they yep. might need it. Well, then that was at the end of the season, and I butchered those all three myself. And, you know, the first one for me, it was horrible, but I know who it is, and it's going to my freezer. It's going to be okay. But by the time I was into, like, the second and a half to the third one, it's just, it was just, I couldn't, oh, it was horrible. Well, I think I had really asked, horrible. I think I, when we were, I think we met one time this winter, and I was like, at that time, I'm like, I think I'm just going to butcher them all myself. Like, this yeah. is going to be awesome. And I'd asked you that, and you're like, well, I just I used to do more, and then I got like tired of killing my friends. And I'm yeah. like, at the time, I'm like, what? But now, <laughs> now you know like, what I'm talking fuck. about. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and so so for customers, you know, I, I can't sell meat. I'm not, I don't do the USDA, you know, yep. parts and stuff like that. So you're buying an animal from me, and then it goes to the slaughterhouse. Right. And, and because I feed them on the trailer, the last month of their life, they get their morning and evening snacks on the trailer. They'll be waiting for me. You like set it, the trailer up in there. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, you put it right in there, and I've got I got little insulators on it, so then I run a little strand of wire, so it's hot right up to the tailgate. Yep. And so in the morning, when I come up in the morning on their on their slaughter date, they're all in the trailer. I just shut the gate, good to go, no stress. Yeah. Yeah, I've I need a trailer, but just just I betrayal. Think... It's just betrayal, and like you said, eating your friends. <laughs> they're gonna taste good though. Oh my gosh, I got ribs on marinade. That right uh. Now. That uh, pork loin you gave us was unbelievable. Good. Good, good, good. All right. So, I mean, it's not the first podcast that's been interrupted by animal problems. Baby chicken's got, well, two options could have happened. One, they looked like the corner had been possibly dug out. So, if that's the case, we yeah. probably have a lot less chickens right now. Right. Anyways. Um, or they had just eaten around it and I didn't notice it because there were such big weeds in there. Have you had uh, had many predator issues with uh, with your chickens? Had none. Yeah. You're pretty close to town. It's pretty open here. I can see that you might yeah. not have as many. We're down in the, you know, we planted all these trees all around, and, and we have Different awesome awesome animal habitat. So we this this uh, without a dog, um, 
you know, we basically haven't been able to survive a winter without a dog. And so we lost 30 chickens and a dozen guineas. Wow. From, from Christmas time till spring. So, I so the winter was an issue? But Pardon? like right now usually isn't an issue? Uh, well, they ate them in the hungry t- part of the year, you know, in the late yeah. winter, early spring. Everything's gone now, so it's not an issue now. The coons keep showing up, and they know where the feed is. And so I'm trying to figure out how to, how to capture raccoons. Um, we had a raccoon problem the first week we lived here just because it was it was so abandoned before yeah. and then we've i mean honestly it's, it is only chicken that's died is uh <clears throat> the door got left open on the coop one night and i'm pretty sure a uh, cat got in right and i found a foot out in the driveway one day <laughs> it was actually there was one morning I, I opened up the door and i looked out and there's the rooster um and a fox eye to eye and this rooster was just giving that fox one hell of a time. And that fox was seriously wondering why he was messing with this rooster. And it only took a couple of dances, and I'm running toward it yelling. And it was like, as the fox finally looked at me saying, like, there's somebody coming, he made the decision to go for it. And he just pounced, and he grabbed that rooster and just ran. And so the rooster lost. <laughs> but it was a hell of a show. It was amazing. I don't, I don't think... I think the fox would have won eventually, anyways, um, but I got to see it. So, so you think it's just because it's so open up here? I, I think I don't know. It's been weird. I think part of it, they have the the, <clears throat> the predators don't have any cover here. Yeah, so they've got cover everywhere on my place. Yeah, that's, and that's what I was thinking too. Like just trying to keep the weeds down around here too was one of my thoughts. Because <clears throat> I had a similar thought. Like must be because it's so wide open. Because I there has been times when I know that they definitely. Well, the coop, I'm pretty sure, if something tried hard enough, it would get in. Yeah. Like, it's not, like, overly secure. And, and that's – it's fun and annoying at the same time to watch the raccoons figure out how to get into your chicken coop. Because they do, and they will. It's just fun watching them going through the process. Yeah. You have, like – so explain your actual homestead. Explain how – well, obviously the – New Forest Farms is kind of like what you're, what you've become known for, because you, you've kind of documented the process right. and then regurgitated it into a book. Converting, converting a corn and beans farm into a perennial polyculture, meaning perennials, meaning they're plants that live year after year. Polyculture, many different species thrown in the mix. So how did I know which species to throw in the mix? I did that by imitating natural plant community types that were that were natural and native to this region. And then I assembled them in rows uh, so we could, we could do either annual crops between the rows, like vegetables or corn or whatever, uh, and then, or pasture between <coughs> the rows. Um, so instead of being a wild system, it's all these rows with all of these the edible plants in that wild system. So anybody who is a forager, whether they're you know, foraging fruits or nuts or berries or whatever it is, you know where those plants are and when they're ripe, et cetera. Well, I know exactly where everything is because I planted it there. And so I've got these systems that I treat as if it's a wild system, um, but it's all the food plants that are in there. And I go from uh, chestnut, cherries, hazelnuts, uh, apples, pine nuts, grapes, raspberries, grapes. I already said grapes. <laughs> Currants, gooseberries, and mushrooms decaying all the wood that's in the, in the process. And then livestock, um, mostly cattle and hogs, uh, grazing in the alleys in between. And then a very few of those. So probably the peak when I was doing it, I had maybe 
10 acres of annual produce that I was selling, um, mostly squash, but then uh, uh, two acres of asparagus, and then uh, peppers and cucumbers is what I would, you know, sell commercially. And then the rest, it's 110 acres, and the rest would be grazing for, for the uh, livestock. And now the, the primary crops are chestnuts and hazelnuts. I used to um, uh, squish a lot of apple cider. I had a hard cider winery for a bunch of years. Um, but the legal system changed and, and mandated that I go through a distributor. I'm a small timer. Was so nice. was that was that just coincidentally around the same exact time <laughs> that um, what's the cider that like shot off out of nowhere, similar to like what will happen with White Claw, it where is. it's like somebody tried it, it took off, and then you could just see everyone like Miller, Coor, well, whatever, all those what ones just swallowed the competition yeah. up. What was happening is that the is like when it was it was more comparable to like the whole craft beer thing when the craft beer thing got started. You know, somebody started it and it took off within public interest, and then the big boys got in, either bought everybody out, everybody up, or pushed others out of business. Yeah. And so they saw they had just gone through the craft brew thing, and then they saw the writing on the wall with the whole cider thing starting. So they they immediately went hostile and changed the rules. And so you would you would like you think that that's uh that happened then like you oh, experienced that yeah, yeah. yeah. I, you know because I, I i just observed it from the outside like yeah. i'm like i think this is happening but i'm i don't know and it makes sense especially when you learn about business and i and i talked to the legislators that actually crafted the legislation that basically pushed the small time craft cider makers uh, out of out of business and he looked me square in the eye and never flinched and never blinked and he just told me, oh, we had to make the laws equal for everybody so everybody have a level playing field so business can flourish. It's like, no, there was a level playing field. You just made and a if, monopoly. And if Miller wants to distribute everything out of the back of their car, they legally can. That's a level playing field. If I want to go through a distributor, I can choose to do so. That's a level playing field. You force us all to go through a distributor, and you immediately force me to borrow more money and upscale and turn into a factory instead of have a, a family farm with a cidery on the side of the road. Whereas if you go to Michigan... Because they made you commercialize, and, and, and which I, comes and I, with and expensive uh, yeah. licensing. The, oh, the licensing. We had to have all the licensing, but it was like just but the, like qual- the volume. Like, the like volume. certifications and... That was all necessary anyways. Oh, so the volume was, is what changed. The volume. We had, in order, you want to put it into cans? You want to buy the machinery that puts cider into cans? Or you know, automatically bottles into four packs and all that kind of stuff? It's expensive. So the law that changed was actually how it was delivered to the consumer. Correct. And it, and it basically took you know, 60% of the, uh, of the, the margin. Of the sales. Yeah, it was gone. So. Which is honestly, now that I'm in it, I, that's how I see the meat and just general ag industry. Now, like, you, I can see that. Like, I see why I understand it now. I understand why conventional agriculture is conventional agriculture because I don't, like, there isn't much of another option. And if you want the laws to be fair, let's go to the grocery store. If you want to buy, I'm going to pick a brand. If you want to buy hood milk, yeah, you buy hood milk at the grocery store. They're large enough. They got all these, this, that, and the other thing. They're going through distributors. They got brokers, blah, blah, blah. They pay for shelf space. That's that game. And you pay three bucks, I don't know how much a gallon for milk. I don't buy milk at the grocery store. Now, if you go buy an organic valley, they have to go through all that kind of stuff, and it's a higher volume, whatever. Well, then let's say you just go to the person down the road, and you buy a gallon of milk right from the farmer. Um, 
that is a fair legal system of distribution. What becomes unfair is when the hoods of the world uh, all of a sudden say, hey. What's hoods? Hood is a, is a milk brand. Oh. Or let's use Kemp. Whatever oh, I got, you, I got you. I got you. Land of Lakes. Yeah. Um, is when they make a law that says that you can't sell your product. That's, that, I think, is wrong. That's not a level playing field. Kind of what's happened to Organic Valley and in the organic industry too, because the like the biggest business in the world are the people who feed people. Yeah. If you go to the very top, it's like what is every like from a business perspective. If you look at it from marketing, it's like what will every single human have to do? If you want to control the human population, what industry would you technically want to be a part of? Sounds like it would be food. Yeah. <clears throat> it's definitely likely. not fingernail polish. So it's like the guys up there <laughs> are the top. And if they're and if they're making the legislation that supports the largest corporations instead of the people who they're supposed to feed, whether you use chemical fertilizers and pesticides or not, that's your personal choice. Uh, whether you use them or not, it's not fair to have the biggest players make it illegal for human beings like you and I to grow food and consume it and to share it with friends and maybe even exchange a couple of dollars. <laughs> yeah it would it's crazy because you see the you see the profit margins and it's like the difference between having no choice but to sell your commodity at say meat for example you have no choice but to sell that at a dollar a pound right because that's what the market tells you you have to sell it at that, then, that that's the only <clears throat> option you have no control over the end the year end sale then. and so the benefit of doing things the way that you're doing it and me to a certain extent, so I, I kind of played both games, is if you're doing it um, direct to the consumer or very close to direct to consumer, you can charge top dollar. Um, they know what they're getting. They, they know what the farm is all about. They have a personal relationship with the farmers, et cetera. Um, and you can, you can have a high price and a decent margin, but you may not be able to sell enough to pay all your bills. So you say, if I need, let's say I need just going to pick a number out of the blue. If I need $25,000 to pay my bills in the course of a year, yeah. if, I'm, if I'm making four bucks a chicken in my pocket, that's incredible. But now I've got to sell 100,000 chickens direct to the consumer. Good luck doing that. That's a lot of birds. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, okay, well, I can sell 100,000 chickens. Who's going to be able to market 100,000 chickens for me? Now you're talking about a larger distributor. Now you get 54 cents a bird. Oh, 100%. It's a marriage between the both yeah. to get started. I've already, I've already understood that. Like, at first, I was like, I'll be able to sell everything, whatever. Yeah. But just the overhead of, of having trying to sell direct-to-consumer is an issue. That's a big one right there because yeah. who's going to actually talk to the customer and spend the time? When a, when a customer calls, it's, you're going to be 15 minutes on the phone. And yeah. how much is your time worth? If you're well, making and 10 bucks an hour, you better be getting paid $2. The amount of food that has to be created, that's almost that's an unfair I what I've come to realize is it's like even like I run an actual marketing agency. It would be unfair for someone to have that same exact like in order to produce the amount of food that needs to be produced in the world. It's almost unfair to expect that from every single farmer, which is not. Yeah. So like there there is a place for the distributors. And and that's why but I But it's like it's so this blend of both right now organic valley itself is a technically a distributor right <coughs> um well it's owned by farmers it's farmer owned so i'm a member owner of organic valley so i know and i knew that all of my product going through organic valley i was going to get a lower price per pound but i knew 
that it was all going to be sold. Guaranteed. So that was a trade-off. And it's, it's, it's going to get sold. It's a it's, what a what a trade like. Yeah. I I I was talking about that last night. I'm like, <clears throat> if you sit back and look at the lifestyle though, like and the business model, it's a beautiful business model. You don't have to deal with customers. You like you have a guaranteed end. <laughs> don't get you don't have to interact with customers. I mentioned about that 15 <clears throat> yeah. minutes per customer. You don't have to interact with people. <laughs> right. That is awesome. It is. Yeah. How do you just get it to where it's like because like. It just has to be a little bit better life for the people that are doing that. Well, and it just has why, to be a little bit better. It's not, it doesn't have to be that much better. And that's why <clears> I <throat> like the, the Organic Valley model. I'm, personally, I'm not uh, as much a fan of a co-op as I am of a, of a you know, LLC or a Schedule C business. But being farmer-owned, I think, is really important because if the business is going to grow and have an upside, um, I, as a shareholder of that company, should have the ability to participate in that upside. Yeah. Whereas co-ops, uh, <clears throat> as set up by the federal government, are limited to, I think, the la last thing I was reading is 8%. Co-ops are like uh, the Packers shareholders. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Through, or Land well, the Packers shareholders are completely fake. Yeah, we know that. It's but totally <laughs> different. But, like, Land Lakes is a co-op. Uh, Ocean Spray Cranberries is a co-op. Blue Diamond, uh, the walnut company, used to be a co-op. And the owners, the farmers were limited by federal law to only 8% return on investment. So the company could be making 100,000% per year growth return on their investment, and they only have to give the farmers 8% of that. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And so I think what it was is when, when co-ops were described by law, I think what it was is they intentionally wired them to not be a preferred model because they wanted everything to go corporate. And so everything kind of has gone corporate except for the co-ops that have held out and, and done all right. And Ocean Spray Cranberry is, is a, a champion. But in a way, Organic Valley has been forced to go corporate because it's the corporate co world, the competitiveness, oh, yeah. got it's, to them where right. it's like they don't really – It's still a co-op. Like, but, they've, but they've entered in – I look – it seems like it's the same realm as just any other food industry then. It's a, it's a co-op that competes with the big um, <coughs> corporations and the – where uh, in most conventional ag, the individual producer scales up individually in order to be as big as you possibly can to get better deals on your inputs, you know, better deals on your equipment, um, and, and more efficiency. So they get the efficiency on a per-farm basis, whereas Organic Valley, as a, as a co-op, the individual farms can be smaller, but wh where the co-op has to be more efficient is at the aggregation, the, the bringing the product together, packaging, processing, and distribution. <clears throat> and so it's, so it's a little bit of at a, at a disadvantage competing with the corporate big boys. But they can't, they can't change the prices beyond what the market will bear. And right. Like who they sets don't... the market? Are these 25,000 cow, you know, carousel? Because I'm sure the organic and... milk price has been driven down lately. Oh, hell yeah. Well, let's, let's use green peppers as an example because that was one of my steady crops. I grew for over 25 years, you know, pallets a week in the summertime. Um, in 1995, I was getting 1750 a case for a 20-pound case of, of green peppers, and I could move a pallet. It was it was uh, 50 cases of pallet. Do the math on that. That's all right. Well, when I stopped doing peppers only like five or six years ago, I was getting 850 a case, half the price. 25 years later, that's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Wow. That means yeah, I just can't imagine. Because it's a business, 
Yeah, but I could sell it's a them business. all. I could sell them all, man. I could grow peppers. So then, then well, the and challenge. you, you, you had, you had adjusted your infrastructure. <laughs> well, te- technically, maybe you didn't, but you would have if you're, if you had that foresight. You're like, well, if I'm doing this now, I'm gonna double down on it. Yeah. And if you plan for that, and you're doing stuff where you're <laughs> taking loans out for a 20 year idea of consistency, probably in your head, like it'll get better because why wouldn't it? I'll just be better at growing these things and get grow more. Let's just look at all of the uh, precision agriculture stuff that's all exciting and fancy hoopla. You know, you got all these satellites out there, and you can have your field gridded in to 10 feet, and as you're going across the field, it, it distributes the fertilizer based on the soil test from the satellite and all this kind of whatever. Really? So you go ahead and you invest in all this computer technology, and you make one heck of an efficiency savings on your fertilizer application right now. And two years later... It's obsolete. But you just sunk 20-year money into something that's obsolete in two years. So the, this, the, the industrial-scale uh, obsession with investing in the newest, latest, most exciting tech, I think is really, really dangerous. It's dangerous for the individuals who are doing it because just look at how fast things have changed. In your lifetime, you remember when your parents didn't have a cell phone. There was no such thing. Yeah, I remember when we were getting them, it was awesome. Yeah. And you probably remember when there was no such thing as an internet, they would plug it in, their computer go, ring, 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 ring. Dial up. Yeah, yeah, sure. I, I remember you know, dial Now look at us right now. Now, what if you had invested 20 year <coughs> money, you know, 10 years ago in some kind of tech that you know, oh, things are only going to get better? Well, no, no, no. They're only getting worse. They're getting better for the people who are. Investing in a technology. It's moving too quickly for a, for an infrastructure loan. It, it's it, way too quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, you know, I didn't get stung by it, but I, I was part of it. So what would you say? What was the technology you got burned on? And, and it wasn't burned, but it was it was pinched because of the same phenomena. Before the big wind turbines really became popular, a small wind like the ten to ten to uh, ten to twenty kilowatt. Um, range was really experiencing an explosion. The technology had really settled in. The, the units became really reliable, fairly affordable. So I put in a 10 kilowatt wind turbine to power my processing building, et cetera, et cetera. And it would generate a surplus of electricity through the course of the year. In the fall, when I was doing a lot of processing of hazelnuts or squishing juice, washing cucumbers and stuff like that, I would use more electricity than it would produce. Um, but for the rest of the year, it produced more than I would use. Um, well, as time went on, and just like we were saying with, with ag, the investment capital got pushed by legislation and by the big boys that are pulling the strings, making the most money off the deal. Most money for wind uh, electricity got pushed to the mega giant um, wind turbines that we see all over the country right now, which I think is a good thing, except for the fact that the benefits of those uh those systems go to only a handful of people who are the investors in that system, and they don't go to the actual producers on the ground. The producers on the ground are going to shut up because he's getting this thousand dollars a month rental fee for that, you know, wind turbine to sit there. But what if, what if, like in your case, what if you just eliminated your electric bill? Gone. Well, I haven't paid an electric bill, a net electric bill, since 1986. And if you added up all the potential electric bills that I could have spent money on, um, that's, that's a significant amount of money. Well, what happened is all of the, the brains... Almost $100,000. Easily. For me. 
then all of Electric the brains, is bad. then the brains and the the technology all gets pushed to the big mega wind turbines. So now my wind turbine got struck by lightning not too long ago. It's currently down. All of the small different wind turbine fix-it guys are out of business. They all went to the big guys because that's who's paying the bills. And the only two guys that are left right now are busy as they can be. Uh, and one of the reasons why they're busy as can be is because they're trying to fix up wind turbines where the, the companies that actually produced them went out of business 10 years ago. So, you know, the, 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 the machine has paid for itself a long time ago. Um, but, you know, I'm still, I'm still need electricity. And so now I've got an electric bill and I'm waiting for the guy to come fix it. So, so I think if, if there was <laughs> one technology that I quote unquote got burned on, it would be that. Another one was uh, converting my diesel tractor to run on straight vegetable oil. That was popular. So that was yeah. popular a couple of years ago then. Like that was only like seven to ten. 2008. Yeah. 2008. Yeah. Well, uh, one of the reasons why it was so popular is because you could run your tractor for, you know, less per gallon than regular diesel fuel because the diesel fuel went through the roof. And I got a one tank system. Two tank system is you start the engine on diesel. It heats the engine up. Once the engine's hot, then you flip it over to run on vegetable oil and it runs just fine. Then the last 10 minutes, you put it back to diesel fuel, cleans the lines off, um, and then you start over next time. Well, in order to save a couple of bucks, and because my tractor was a smaller horsepower tractor, I did the um, uh, single tank system where you would start it on straight vegetable oil. And it, it, it doesn't have as uh, low a explosion point as petroleum diesel does. And so you would have a lot of uh, carbon deposits that end up being these little micro dots that scrub out your cylinders. And after five years of running it, I, um, you know, I basically honed out my engine. I had to get the engine rebuilt. And so it's still capable of running on vegetable oil. So what I'll do is I'll go ahead and I'll start. If I'm going to do it all day, I'm cutting hay, right? I'll be out there mm -hmm. all day. Start in the morning on an almost empty tank of diesel, top it off with vegetable oil. Um, then halfway through the day, top it off with diesel, and at the end of the day, top it off with diesel, let it run for a while, and when it doesn't smell like French fries, shut it off. <laughs> <laughs> what a system. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and so that those are great technologies. You know that the, the... So at that time, were you creating, were you making the vegetable oil? No, I was part of, you know, part of the Organic Valley Co-op. We had a racket going on where there were producer members that were growing uh, mostly camelina and sunflower seeds. Um, we had a, a, you know, as a, as a co-op, we had a truck and an oil press that would uh, press the oil and then uh, producers with poultry or hogs would keep the press cake and feed it to, the, to animals. And so you'd have a high protein feed from your field. So you're growing feed and then you have this oil that you would sell as an extra on top of that. And that, that, that's a really good system because then you have producers in an area can produce their own fuel. And they, after a while, they figured out that on a, on a typical dairy, a typical Organic Valley dairy of X acres, and I don't remember the, the stats by now, um, they only needed 10% of their farm in oil seeds, and they could power their farm, and that would be all the traction needs and backup electrical generation needs. But it just, it's not sustainable with the way the engines are made? Uh, no, it was not sustainable because all the tech went to other bigger, higher, higher um, volume stuff. All the you know, doing the micro diesel as a, as a co-op all of a sudden doesn't make as much sense as building a $500 million plant over here where they're taking, you know, soybeans from a zillion acres, running them through, pressing the oil, putting them in tankers. So the, the economics turned into the economics of the mega scale 
worked better than the economics of the micro scale. Well, it seems <clears throat> it's almost the way that everything happens. That's does kind of seem that way, doesn't it, Taylor? <laughs> <laughs> you started this. You were talking about chickens and pigs, okay? <laughs> I just, yeah, I mean, I, but I think, th is it more you've come to the realization that because you have a brain of wanting, not, you don't have to like, be rich, but, like, you have the, like, the business mind to want to be, like, to do really well, like, to be well off. Money shouldn't be a problem. So, I, like, in that, if you have that mindset, like, just farming just really just not going to get you there, most likely. <laughs> if, if you're looking for a big cash flow, farming isn't the way to get the big cash flow. If you're looking at a way to write down income from somewhere else, farming is the way to go. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> you can spend money on everything, and it yeah. reduces your tax load elsewhere. Yeah. Well, so what, what, a couple of different things. For one, on the agriculture side of things, if I can reduce my expenses, my input costs, to almost zero, um, I'm way ahead. And let's take a natural system, a ditch on the side of the road or, you know, national park somewhere where nobody does anything to it out in that natural system there are fruits there's nuts there's berries there's flowers there's mushrooms there's animals you know yeah, you guys hunt deer. animals yeah. so this natural system costs nothing to operate so the operating costs are zero are you sure because technically in politics i think it does cost something <laughs> according to them but they're yeah they're politicians so if i'm a landowner that costs me zero to produce all the meat and the vegetables and the fruit that's coming off that land. Yep. So my cost of production, I, I end up having a harvest cost um, and the marketing cost, but everybody has a harvest cost and a marketing cost. So if I can get my system to be almost wild in how I take care of it, I reduce my costs down to nothing. Then uh, if I take care of my material needs, I still produce my own electricity, my own heat, um, um, uh, firewood and solar and photovoltaic uh, takes care of all my energy needs. My only real bills are my phone and um, uh, taxes. Yeah. So a food is a byproduct of my system. It's all over the place. If I'm harvesting, you know, say a ton of peppers a week for Organic Valley, I've got five, six, seven, eight hundred pounds of peppers left over at the end of the week that are crooked or bent or have a bug hole in it. They go to the pigs, or they get chopped up and put in the freezer. Um, and then, then the pigs get sold as an additional revenue stream. So if I can reduce my costs down to zero and utilize absolutely everything on the farm, that's a great way to uh, make the, the uh, finance, finances of this kind of project work. Well, then the other one that I've been doing for years and years and years is to buy a piece of crap property. If you go looking for rural property, don't buy the finest looking thing out there because somebody else has put all the money into making that fancy log cabin. Uh, they've put in the at-risk capital to improve the value of that well, you asset. Need, you need people to buy those things or this. <clears throat> all right. <laughs> Otherwise, you don't get the real estate sales commission. Yeah. But, well, no, or the system you're about to describe right. won't work. So, so, then, so then if I buy a piece of crap property and then I go ahead and I plant all these, these plants in this natural system and I use the agricultural revenues to cash flow my own personal self. Any surpluses go into improving the value of that asset. They go into making the buildings better, more efficient, you know, more attractive, whatever they go into uh, producing, uh, to, to creating 
um, uh, self-watering, you know, rain-fed pulse irrigation systems. Every dollar that the system generates goes right back into the system. And then the real value add ends up being the capital gain of that property. Whereas if you bought, bought it at 400, for example, and it goes up to 1,000 per acre, um, well, by adding the buildings and then this and that, the other thing, you get all of that value added gain. And so that's the real gain. So you either sell it to somebody else or refinance to buy the next one. From an easiest <clears throat> equation, you essentially could take $1 borrow a lot of dollars and then get back one dollar but you've acquired real estate at your paint like the, it's an inf infinite return on an investment it can yeah, be it can be yeah and of, and of course you know we'll never approach the infinite return on investment kind of yeah. thing but yeah it can be but since, since this, because you're but like technically you would not necessarily like a lot of work and a lot of money does change hands, but if you're, oh, yeah. if I mean, if you're, if you're pulling out a like break even, it's like, it's like the your your expectations just need to be like that's how I look at it. Now. Your and expectations just need even. to be adjusted yeah. to just this thing and just pays for real estate. Don't it's not this thing pays for my life. If if the farm pays for itself and for its own improvement, it yeah. will work for you as a real estate investment downstream. The farm may pay for itself and the improvement of the real estate, but it might not pay you a kick-ass salary yeah. that you'll be happy. Pay you a hundred grand yeah. and like live your normal whatever, Correct. go out to restaurants every other night. But you could, you have the availability or possibility, probably by running that system, to be like, well, I, technically, like we just talked about, your bills are gone. In this system, I could live on like ten thousand a year or something. Right. Well, and then if actually, I just didn't care about like, <laughs> it's just, however people want to look at it. You and know? actually, what you'll want to do is you'll want to make sure that when you start to generate positive revenues, is you'll want to make sure that you spend it on something that's a tax deduction. Because if I earn a hundred dollars, for example, you know, Uncle Sam's going to want twenty-five percent of that in taxes. Well, what if I earned the same a hundred dollars, but then I spent some on trees, which I need for the system anyways? That's a deduction. I spent it on an energy, you know, production system, solar panels or a new pump in the solar pump for the well. That's a cost of production. Yeah. What if I buy what if I buy basic minerals for mineral amendments for my soil to make my place more fertile in the long run? What if I buy a couple extra cattle pretty soon? Uh, for your tax purposes, you've taken this this revenue and you've put it down to zero, so you pay taxes on zero. You're already twenty five dollars off better because the feds would have taken a hundred right off the top. If you'd made that hundred dollars, so once you do start to generate some revenues, now you want to spend it so you don't pay taxes. Yeah, and as long as you have other streams to live on, right? It shouldn't like so that's where and it. Would you say that you 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 probably got to a point though where you're like I could live a normal like you lived your life essentially just off your agriculture off your only property income wise, right? Like there I've, were periods, there were times. This, I've been doing this for thirty five years, okay. And yeah. 15 of those years, my uh, taxable income was zero. Yeah. How do you do that? How do you live on zero a year? By designing a system that works like nature. Feeds you, takes care of your heat, takes care of your electric. Um, so there are things probably in that 15 years that were throttled up, that you've throttled back now. So what I'm saying is if someone could come in full-time job, 
whatever, a normal job, and as a hobby could probably get close to a production that could break even. I don't know if I quite understand your question, but what I'm going to kind of put it at is the resource base that I helped to design and install that's now operating almost as a natural system. The yields that could come off of that system are way more than I'm currently utilizing. Um, yeah. I would rather not work that hard. I'd rather kick back and enjoy myself a little bit more than, than that. And so I don't harvest anywhere near the potential that you could harvest off of that. What are those potential yields? I don't know. I have no idea. A lot of people say, yeah, but how can you, you know, you're not getting the yields of somebody else. How can you feed the world that way? It's like, look, time out, time out, time out. The whole entire agricultural system is chasing yield, 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 yield. And look where it's led farmers. Farmers are in hawk over their head, uh, building these zillion cow dairies, you know, never getting any sleep, committing suicide at higher rates than the general population and all that kind of stuff. And, and is still starving people around the world. Why not live a good life? What about living a good life? Having a nice business, it pays your bills, it feeds you well, you can raise up a couple of cool kids that go to college, and um, and I just got back two days ago, I got back from Alaska. I went on vacation in Alaska for almost three weeks. Why not live a good life? What do I need $100,000 a year you know, net revenue busting my ass for? That's up to you if you want. Yeah, and if that person comes to you and says, that is what I have, like, because <clears throat> you are... <clears throat> You're different for a reason. I mean, there's just you are different. <laughs> well, and actually, but so am I. But like, there's people out there, the everyday guys that will sit and be like, I, I'm, I, they're saving for like 20, 25 years. My the whole point of this is, I don't think that you need to save every penny, live a normal job, or have a normal job. There's ways to do this right, like with your job, and break even, and it's and it's a good investment model. It is a really good investment model because you take a piece of crap land. You're buying land that's below market value because it's got erosion gullies or the soil sucks or there's rocks all over the place. Well, you buy that. Now you ecologically rehab. It's genuinely a better place, produces more water, you know, clean water, fresh air, all that baloney. And you've planted all the food species. And and, and you still farm – like you still took advantage of it enough to pay for itself yeah. during that time. And it pays for itself. It's not necessarily making me $100,000 a year. It's fine. Yeah. It makes me zero. Half of my half of my adult life, it's paid me zero. Yeah, and that's okay. <laughs> right, or some advantageous years, negative, whatever. Right, it's exactly yeah. <laughs> right. Even better is when I when I well, not all of the years where it's been negative have been good ones. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, but like yeah. you, I feel like you attempted a thing. You, you attempted like that was your kind of like sole way of of, of uh, income for a while, was it not? It has been since yeah. I was 24 so years old. The person who's sitting back saying, like, my whole point to this is, like, people sit back and be like, I can't buy land right now because I can't afford it. It's like, but there is so what I want not to an is, overly. I'm going to stop right there. And to say I can't afford it. Um, that's just a bad is, attitude. That's yeah. a concept. Yeah. So it's like, okay, land costs this much. Put a number down. Financing costs this much. Put a number down. That requires this much in, in payments every single month, every six months, you know, once a year, whatever. That is a number that I now have to come up with. Now put your mind to work saying, how do I come up with, you know, 2000 a month instead of saying, I can't afford it. I can't afford it as a cop out. Yeah. You say, yeah, but I don't earn 2000 a month. Cool. Yeah. Now let's design a system that generates that revenue. And if you come up with that $2,000 a month, 
and you spend $2,000 a month, your, your income is zero. But you just bought a farm, 100% debt financed, and you've produced all this food, a place to live, you built your own home, you're producing your own firewood, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and you end up with zero at the end of the year, but you bought a farm on credit, that's pretty cool. Yeah. It's pretty cool. <coughs> oh, but what if I can't make a payment? Well, then they take the land, and you start again. Creditors can't eat you. <laughs> yeah. Creditors can't eat you. Yeah, and it's I it, what so what do you people I'm sure you get it all the time though. People be like, I just can't I can't buy that or I can't get that. I can't get that land. And it's like, yeah, there's there's a game to play with the banks too, as I get the financing portions. Like you have to get to the point where you qualify for that. If you're not willing to play the math game, yeah, um, then you're you're out of luck. And, and I'm sorry that you, you want to blame it on something else. You want to blame it on real estate prices. You know, go ahead. You just tripped on the sidewalk and hit your forehead on the ground. Blame it on gravity. Go for it. This is the way the system is set up. It's a raw deal. We've already talked about ag and all that kind yeah. of stuff. It's a total raw deal. But you can borrow money. You can pay it back with the revenues from a piece of property and live a good life. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to build your credit, and there's some really simple techniques to build credit, and a lot of people don't like that. Here, here's a wild and crazy example. Uh, if you put money, my cash advance, I just got, I was paying my bills today. Cash advance on my uh, credit card is at 25%. That's ridiculous, right? Um, yeah. But because I've had these credit cards for these particular period of time, um, my credit limit is huge. Well, if I took a cash advance at 25%, that 25% is generated after 14 days. So up to day 13 and a half, there's no interest generated yet. So if I immediately pay that off with a balance transfer at 6% on another card, um, how much interest was generated? Well, none, none until... Yet. Well, probably so, the balance so transfer then, probably takes 30 days, too. And so the balance transfer fee would be a 1.6% yeah. fee. Well, now I've got this real debt, but I've only paid a 1.6% on it, and I can play that game over and over and over. And you just play the balance transfer game forever and ever and ever, and you're just paying 1.6%. When was the last time you borrowed money at 1.6%? Nowadays, there's actually a fair amount out there at pretty good <laughs> yeah, rates. Yeah, yeah. Um, but back when, when interest rates were 18, 20% for real estate loans, I was borrowing at like 1.6, 1.9%. It's just math. Yeah. It feels, it feels wrong. Well, you know what? To people, it that's feels wrong issue. to me that Jeff Bezos didn't pay any taxes in 2020. And I was going to use the word MF and I decided not to. <laughs> and it was not Massey Ferguson. Okay. I think that's wrong. But the laws that allowed Jeff Bezos to not pay taxes in 2020 are the same laws available to anybody. To yeah. So learn what they are. Hire an accountant. Oh, no, I can't afford an account. You can't afford not to have an accountant because they know all the different angles that you can go play. You set it up using an attorney. What? I can't afford an attorney. Use an attorney, use an accountant, set up your system, and it's a mathematical machine that works and get a good lender and then and get a lender that you can work with right exactly right and then invest in nature because since day one natural systems have been able to t 
take the sunshine and the rain uh, and, and the minerals of the soil and life itself and turn it into a net ecological gain every single year. A tree gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger during its natural life lifetime. That is a true ecological capitalistic model. And we can design our system to be an ecological system. And if we're minimizing what we spend, it pays and, and we have the capital gains long term to, to prove it. Yeah. I feel like you just, I feel like we just threw together something, not threw together, but put together in a articulate, like a way for people to learn a learning type course for that, that kind of, that is your brain going into exactly how to do exactly what we just talked about. And, and, and you know, if, if we go ahead, anybody just listens to this, they go like, whoa, that all sounds good, but what about the details? Well, yeah. you know what? The details are absolutely critical. But you got to have this big picture that's going to work. And then you do yeah. all the math, it's going to work. Well, now all we have to do is figure out the details along there. That's why we do these uh, intensive training courses along the way. Because there are specific ways for people who don't have good credit or don't have any credit at all. If you want to buy real estate, get into you know farming or natural resources, forestry, whatever. You want to live out, hang out in the woods and shoot deer and turkeys um, and sit on your porch all day playing banjo, you can do it. But you got to build your credit first. Yep. Learn how to invest in real estate. Learn how to structure an offer. Um, learn how to negotiate. Uh, learn how to refinance strategically at the right time. Um, there's all these different things along the way that you'll have to learn, and that's why we do these uh, these intensive training courses. So the one that you just released, what would you say? Let, let's kind of go in like recapping or kind of overviewing exactly what's in there. It's what's, the, what's in there, it's, uh, it's the ecology of how a system like this works. Um, so it's step two. So like we just covered step one, essentially, how to acquire a piece of property, uh, which you need to have. In, so I think I feel like most people try to skip to step two and like they learn all of it and they're like, I want it. And then they get probably like kicked back and be like from a banker, most likely. Right. And they're like, shit, I guess I'm never going to get that. Or whatever the, whatever way they come to it, they may like they're probably more. It's more interesting to come to the second step. Well, and actually, whether it's the first step or the second, you know, and, and you can we can argue that over a beer sometime maybe. Yeah. Um, but many people have this nebulous understanding. Oh yeah, nature works. Well, you know how does nature work? And when I say to you that nature works this way, and you can prove it. And by following nature's pattern, it pays for itself. And I really didn't do fairly anything to make it do that. It does it all by itself. So to understand how nature works, specifically related to running a farm operation, um, that's critical information. Because there's all kinds of educational courses and books and audio and podcasts on how to make the best soil and grow earthworms this and a grow tower here and a hydroponic that and a hoop house this on how to make it in agriculture but time out how does nature work now how can i use that to actually grow products that i can then eat sell burn use as medicine blah 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 that's what the the current course is all about yeah <clears throat> and it's so something i've been wrestling with or since i've been running animals on this i'm like instantly i feel like i'm wasting the woods <clears throat> like i'm wasting the existing woods i have 
I'm like, it needs to be set up somewhere to at least, because in my head, I'm like, well, you leave the woods to the deer and whatever. That's where they're bedding. You don't want to run animals through it. It'll just disturb everything. But I don't, now I'm getting more to the point where it's like, well, every, they, the whole property needs to be set up to at least run animals through it one time, two times a year. At least at some point. At time. some point, you need to get something off that. And that's why taking that first course or the second course, however yes. we're labeling it, the, you know, the, the Well, the forest ecology, like instantly yeah. you could take woods in this area and follow those steps. But like, it's not just forest ecology in that course it, either. It's, it's not. But, it, but it basically, uh, all systems on planet Earth from deserts to tundra have woody species in them, have trees in them. So, you know, ecology is the ecology of forested systems. That's what the terrestrial surfaces of this planet grow trees. Um, right. uh, but understanding how those systems work, now you'll know when can I introduce cattle to that system. Well, how do I help these trees to grow better? Uh, maybe it's like the carrots in my garden. If I thin the carrots a little bit, the ones that stay behind grow faster. That happens with trees. That's a crazy thing about nature, too. So let's go ahead and harvest some trees. And with those trees that we harvest, we'll Get turn money. some into some into saw logs, some into firewood, some into mushroom logs, some into building materials for our own self. And we've now caused the trees to grow faster. We've let in a little bit of light, and now a little bit of grass grows underneath. Now we graze our cattle in there. We get 300 pounds of beef per acre, times however much you're selling it for. All of a sudden, we just got five revenue streams out of our woods just by interacting with it in a manner that 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 imitates how nature would deal with it and that's drastically different than holding that th those the woods as woods for 40 years and then going in and, and slaughtering it with loggers and skidders and all that kind of stuff it's a radically different approach and the total dollars that come out of the system the way we first described it are way more than what you would get from just waiting 40 years and, and harvesting it as timber yeah really and it's and it's beneficial to the deer habitat it's just beneficial to the wildlife habitat because you've created a place with much more cover. Because the second the animals move out, all that stuff starts regrowing. Zip, and they all come back in. And yeah. you time the it. comes in. I mean, I, I realize it kind of <clears throat> mainly because there's a pasture I hunt at, you know, where the where conventional ag is happening, the farm I hunt. And the neighbor has, pat, has cattle that must move out in October or something. And it's like, you just know, in the back of my head, I'm like, I knew, like, they're all going to be piled in there in November because the cattle are out. Right. In my head, though, it's never triggered being like, because even when I bought this property, it's like, well, I don't want to put it in, they don't want to put cattle in the woods. But it happened right in front of me in a situation where, I mean, like, you could, it's just, Because what you don't want to do, like, and we've all, we've all seen a pasture that's been abused. Yeah. Somebody puts 100 cows out there and just ignores them for a season. That's not how you want to do it. And that's how this pasture even was. Yeah. And they got moved out for less than a month, and they still piled in. Yeah, so you don't want to you don't want to. So imagine if you yeah, imagine if you time it nice, like mid-July, you run them through it. That's a, I mean, you a month and a half of regrowth then. So if you understand how that natural system works in the first place, and you know when it is that you want to remove some material and when, you, when it is that you want to give it a flush of fertilizer, you go ahead and you move the cattle in at that particular strategic time. And I'll use chestnuts as an example right now in my system. I wait until after they finish blooming. They usually bloom 20th of June to 4th of July. And then once they're finished blooming, then I'll go in and I'll mow. So what's happened is I've let the grass grow long in the early part of the year, all the ground nesting birds, you know, meadow larks and bobolinks and all that kind of stuff, they have a place to go. Well then uh, I go in and I graze off this tall grass. <clears throat> um, the roots flush a lot of liquid um, 
carbon down into the soil. It wakes up the soil life. The cattle poop and they pee. Uh, that's the fertilizer. Then all of a sudden the chestnut tree has just had seeds fertilized. And if it doesn't have enough resources, it's going to abort half the nuts. But if all of a sudden, right when it needs a shot of fertilizer, it gets it, bam, you're going to get an extra heavy crop of nuts because you timed it properly for when that tree needed a shot of fertilizer. You reduced the competition with weeds and you gave it a shot of fertilizer. And that also benefits all of the ground nesting birds because they've had the opportunity to fledge all their young. That's the kind of information, the detailed knowledge that's in the course, in the um, uh, ecology course, the ecology yeah, and it's a agriculture. Well, you, you, you refer to it as college level. I mean, you refer to it as that in the course. Yeah, well, it is, it is, but what it's not, it's not a complete college level curricula because I left out like the statistical analysis, analysis and, and anal retentive kind of crap that makes you need extra oatmeal muffin cookies just to take a crap in the morning because um, that's not necessary for a land manager. What we need to know are the principles. How does this work? Now it's for the rest of our life, it's like, like playing a piano. We want to make sure it's tuned. And if one string goes out, you adjust that and it affects the tuning of everything else. You adjust another string and another string and another string. But we need to understand how that system works and then we can do the fine tuning for the rest of our lives. So the value of the course, if we go back to step one and assume that someone has it understood, they acquire the property, they understand that if you get to the point of step two and, and make that property cash flow, we're essentially putting $1 in to get $1 back, but you end, you end that end investment with a piece of property. Right. Right? So what the value of the course, if that's essentially what you're teaching somebody to do, which it is because it's, it's, there is a lot of content in it. Yeah. It's not something just you're going to go over in a day. <laughs> the value of the course is yeah. well, infinite. And then, <laughs> then, yeah, then you think about the value of the course because all of a sudden, when you once you realize that, a natural system, a system that mimics nature as close as it possibly can, is for all practical purposes almost going to take care of itself. And it's and fairly, you you could compare it to a three level, three credit college level course. Even if we compared it at that value, yeah. For what's sure. that? I mean, what's that nowadays? Like three grand? I have no idea. I think maybe I don't know either. I don't know. So. So but, we have it at what? Ninety-seven dollars. I think right now yeah, for a limited time, I guess there's only a few yeah. more spots too, because we are going to do it to a certain number of yeah. spots. So we're announcing it only to the 1080 outdoors group and then your guys' group. And then at the end of this month, July, we're, we're going to bump the price back up to like 500 or whatever you originally were selling it for a couple of years ago. Right. So, and it works for the hunting world. Like it, anyone who's managing land, even if you take some of the principles, even if you're still like, I'm a conventional ag guy, whatever it is, you can take the principles. So, so I'm in I'm in Taylor's barn right now. Yeah. And I think there's eight or a dozen deer heads on the wall. Yeah. It's like, oh, this cute little boy. That's nice. He's got a couple of deersies. Aren't they cute? We pull shit like this off my place all the time. Yeah. Well, you did last year too. The, uh, yeah, your yeah. helper he killed a, our, a dandy one thirty ten pointer. And... Our farm used to be the place where deer went through. Now it's the place where the deer come from. Yes. I can attest to that too because I've walked it. The sign is insane. Well, you have, if anything, it's more of an issue because you're they knock over your mushrooms. They set do. Up, they <laughs> they're in your backyard. Probably. How do you keep them? How do you keep them out of your? Because that's another thing I don't really deal with here at the garden. I don't really have an issue with deer coming all the way up here either. Um, I plant enough. In, really? In, yeah. You know, if you're and you do, don't fence anything out. Do no. you fence chickens out? I fence chickens in. 
You fence them in. Yeah. Oh, okay. See, I have them fenced out. And I did. I did the whole free range thing for a while, and that worked really great. Um, and then the portable chicken cages it was like 800% more work for, you know, 20% feed reduction. That was bullshit. Oh shit! I said a bad word. Sorry. Um, oh. But the free range worked really well, but you had to be willing to accept losses, and it took a while for them to learn. And by like year three, I had these crazy, wild, rugged birds that that nobody messed with, and they could escape anybody. Um, but but they, what I didn't learn, until the dog got hit by the health inspector, um, for the cidery operation. Oh my is that god! That dog was just enough to deter enough predation. That the chickens could just survive free range. Um, once the dog was gone, you know, it's been brutal ever since. So I must just be lucky. This property just set up. I'm just lucky. Lucky, but you're also your house is way up at the top of the ridge, yeah. and it's open for 88. But I had never considered that. Yeah. I'd never considered that being the pot like a, such a positive, but yeah. it must be because everybody got, says that. And like, you've got two dogs. But they are not out at night at all. Yeah, but they stink. Yeah. And yeah, they're running all over the place. You never know when there's going to be a dog around the corner. I yeah, yeah. Bulk pretty much puts his scent in a probably a thirty of the sixty acres. He probably has it on thirty acres daily. He got it on my leg earlier. <laughs> yeah, he has a thing where he thinks he's going to catch barn swallows, so he goes <laughs> running a cute. long ways for him. It's wild. So go to restoringagriculture.com. That's that's where Mark's course is. It is 100% worth your time, and I'd recommend going through that first because then we'll have we're gonna have workshops, different things for people actually to get on New Forest Farm, possibly come on our farm at some point here, and it all is gonna be tied together with that course. And also by signing up for that, uh, you know, if if you've ever even looked into me at all, you've seen there's like a million YouTube videos and stuff. Well, if you go ahead and sign up for this course, there's other videos that people haven't seen before yep. that you only get to see if you're on this. And it's not like it's going to be any earth, anything earth-shattering, but I can walk around someone and I have this aha moment, like, oh, my gosh, look at this. And there's like a little two-minute clip on something absolutely amazing that's just it's just not worth putting out on YouTube. Yeah, and I think the big thing people would say, they go, they go through this and they'd be like, well, I don't – like they have to like physically see it or see like examples of it. And we, we did include a, a whole case study bonus. So if you if you choose to to buy that extra, there is a whole other course that's just case studies of farms that you've consulted on, transformed, worked on, and the that the value in that is insane. Because then it then it then it makes more sense because then it, you can connect it and you can actually see it. And, and what's neat about the case studies is there are people just like you know just like you listeners that um, you got a piece of property we work together we set up a system, and and. I sit down with the farmer and we, we talk about the system, how it's laid out, what ecological principles it embodies, and many of them are from different parts of the country. I don't have any deserts in there, um, but we can work on that. I <laughs> thought you did. Maybe oh, I did. Pretty close. Well, Africa. Then. Yeah, right? I was going to say, like, Africa, yeah. I thought they were something like really like arid. It's extremely arid. Because yeah. even like the Colorado, isn't there like a Colorado yeah, one or out west Colorado one? That's guys. pretty similar if, to. If you want to know Colorado, one of you know my favorite students, and we work a lot together right now, is Jake Tackiff. Um, I think it's Cedar Springs Ranch in yeah. um, Montrose, Colorado. And another one is Deer Tree Farm in Montrose, Colorado. And those boys are on it, man. And this, this Jake Tackiff, he, uh, three inches of rain a year, okay? 
dry desert high valley. I don't want to hear all you people listening and know I complain about it right now. He don't puts even... he puts water management swales in place. Just last year, uh, he installed his fourth pond uh, because the stream started to flow again, and he caught a, a 20 inch um, brown trout this this uh, late winter. Wow. In a place that was a desert with no fish, no stream. That is. All you do is you got to save that water, you know, soak it in, spread it out, and then create the natural ecosystems that belong there. And the whole thing just, it's just, it's a na- nature restart. The biggest, and it's crazy too, because I've, I've been talking about on the podcast, my fight with the NRCS lately, because they have all the demands, technical ways you're supposed to install everything, the seed, seeding. Right. And I'm like, please come out to the 10 acres I planted where I just threw all the mix of uh, clover and everything a year ago on the same stuff I'm throwing it on right now and go look at it. Cause it literally, it didn't look great last year, mowed some of it like twice. Some of it I didn't mow at all because you can still see the giant ragweed stems in it. Yep. And it's it's up to your thigh right now. Yeah. And it has moisture, like the perennial ver- like the perennial way holds moisture on your property. Yeah. It just does. Like in times like this, it gives you a shot to at so least have a. To, they want you to install it a certain way. Oh, demanding, demanding. Don't take their money. That's it. I know? we're getting to that point. I think. Yeah. So so back to like economic freedom. <clears throat> Some people think that economic freedom is earning enough money to not be concerned about what you're buying and this kind of stuff like that. To me, uh, one part of economic freedom is freedom from the economy. Yeah. I don't have to. Pay attention to those guys because I'm going to be doing better work than they can, and it's not going to cost me. I don't have to bend over and kiss my ankles for their stupid stuff. You told me. I heard it from other people, and I was like, no, I have to at least try it because it does appear to be a a good idea. And for other people, you know, like as a kind of a case study situation, like I need to go through it because it. A ton of people ask about it, do they not? Like it's kind of the first thing you hear about when you own land. Like, oh, someone's someone's going to pay me. Flowers. It is. It's been terrible. Yeah. It's been terrible. <laughs> Everything you said was correct. I've even tried. I mean, it's just, but like, yeah, I wouldn't recommend it. Let's take no. two acres, two acres of, of prairie wildflowers that are native to this region. It's going to cost $2,000 for seed. Holy crap. It's going to be there forever, but, you know, we don't need to talk about that, right? So, you know, 2000 divided by forever. I could go get 90% of that cost shared through the federal government. It's- but... I have to be on their time schedule. I have to plant it their way. They want me to have an $8,000 grain drill. They want me to do this and that and these herbicides. And like, F that. I'm going to drop the two grand on the seed, put it in the ground, and it's a perennial native prairie plant that if it doesn't come up this year, it'll come up next year, maybe the next year, maybe the next year. I don't care. Go back about two episodes, and I literally I had, I was, had the same rant. because no I just the, the, the pollinator plantings is what pushed everything over there the edge. Yeah. They were like, I bought three acres, and he, the dude is coming out to, like, inspect the pasture planting. And he's like, well, how's the pollinator stuff coming? I'm like, I just actually threw an acre of it out here. And he's like, what? Like, started taking pictures and shit. And then sent me an email the next day. It's like, yeah, we don't think we're going to be able to, to, to qualify it. Because, like, I had, I, had, I, had, I was like, fine, I'll till a little bit. I tilled strips, then just threw seed. Not to mention this is the conventional ag field last year with, with herbicide. Like, yeah. yeah, there's some ragweed coming up, but I was like, okay, fine. I'll just mow the shit out of it. Yeah. I'll mow the shit out of it. And I told him, I was like, honestly, I kind of think this ragweed is acting as a goddamn nurse crop because I mow it and everything is blown, blown up underneath it. Yeah. Is it really that bad? 
And I know for a fact it's not going to seed until August. Right? Yeah. And then you just mow it in, in July. And they were already trying to kick me out. Wow. Told me I wasn't going to qualify. I got, like, fucking people from, like, the Madison office emailing me and stuff. And I'm like, then don't. Finally, I was just like, don't then. Come back in a year because I don't know. The contract's like four years, so you have plenty of time. And I'm like, just come back in a year then, and we'll look at it. Because obviously, because he's like, you, he's like, you're going to have too many weeds, and, and you have to do I'm like, well, I guess at first, because I, I did not make it a secret. I'm like, I don't really want to till, and I don't really want to spray herbicide. Like, I'm just going to kind of let it go naturally. I'm going to broadcast, and I'm not paying a bunch of money to go get a, a no-till or, or whatever. And all those conversations going up to it, like, okay, yeah, everyone does it their own way. But no, we're not. I'm like, how did the conversation change, man? Because it got imagine? to the point of like where money was about to be moved. You you're know, you're in the middle of it, and you're gonna go four years, two thousand dollars divided by four years. That's what. It's only a five. It doesn't matter. Yeah, I, I'm over it already. Yeah. I'm like, fine. Fuck you. I'm not. It's just I'm not doing it. <laughs> I will not. So go to restoringagriculture.com. Mark just. So go back a couple episodes. Plus, you and I had an episode uh, a year ago. I don't remember for sure what episode number that is, but we do. That's more in depth with like the actual, probably a lot more consistent with what's actually in this course. But we covered really kind of like the first step, second step of implementations in the course. Our other episode covers that a lot more. Um, but you'll be hearing a lot more from Mark, and then go check that course out. We appreciate it. All right, we'll meet you outside. All right. <laughs>